Father, we thank you for the promise of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, who was revealed in the fullness of time. We thank you for the power of his blood, which was shed for the remission of our sins. We thank you that there is no stain so dark that the cleansing power of Christ's blood can't make us pure and white as snow. We thank you that there is no, Lord, uh, there is no sin so extreme that the power of Christ redeemed cannot purchase for us new and eternal life and the cost at the cost of His blood. We thank you, Lord, that there is nothing standing now between us and relationship with you because we have the perfect mediator and high priest, Christ, who eternally intercedes on our behalf and who has trans. Uh, who has crossed, Lord Jesus, the barrier between the sinner and the holy God in order that we might be reunited in perfect and holy communion to you. We thank you, God, that this is possible through the gospel of our Lord and Savior. I pray now as we turn to your holy scriptures that you would open your word to our hearts. I pray that you would use this time of the proclamation of your recorded truth to awaken the lost, unto salvation and the revelation of Christ, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, to strengthen and solidify the faith of those who walk uh, following you, Lord Jesus, that we might boldly and consistently proclaim the truth to a world that is lost and without hope until such time as they repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray, Lord, at the threshold of this new year that you would set the tone for our goals and our ambitions to be uh, focused upon you and your glory and that we might uh, venture forth into 2019 seeking first your kingdom and your righteousness and trusting that you will add even to us all things that we need to make your name known, to glorify you, and to continue to grow more into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would use this service and the proclaiming of your word today to accomplish these ends. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. This morning, I'd like to give to you the third and final in a series centered around the theme of the heart cry of Eve. The title of today's message is Heart Cry Answered, and it comes to us from Luke 2, 22 through 38. Luke 2, 22 through 38 will be our text this morning. As you're turning there, let me give you an aim. A possible aim for this message, a purpose for a sermon such as this, could perhaps be stated as follows, that our deepest longings may be conformed to our greatest need. That our deepest longings may be conformed to our greatest need. What do I mean? Namely, that if we recognize our greatest need is to be ransomed and redeemed, as we have just sung, is to be in right standing before a holy God, it stands to reason that our deepest desires <coughs> should be that this would come to pass. And our deepest longings, <coughs> our most heartfelt desires, would come into line with our greatest need. I believe we see two examples of this. In our text today, as we, record, as we see recorded, the reaction, the uh, introduction, if you will, of the Messiah, though still a baby, to two individuals, Simeon and Anna. So with that introduction, would you stand with me 
out of reverence for the Word of God, and let us hear in our ears today proclaimed the holy, immutable, and infallible Word of the Lord. Again, this is Luke, 20, or Luke 2, 22 through 38. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law. He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, <coughs> this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Verse 36, And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher, she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. <clears throat> The heart cry of Eve, as we've mentioned, goes all the way back to the garden. We've talked about this concept, echoed by Eve, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. This with reference, no doubt, to the promise that hope is invested in a future son, a future son of Eve, whose heel would crush the serpent's head. Hope in a future son had carried forward thus through millennia, thousands of years, to this moment in our text. And finally, as Christ is born, as God has taken on flesh, as He has been born according to the promises and prophecies of old, as Jesus Christ has entered our world, the heart cry of Eve is answered. The faithful had held out hope in the covenant promises of the Lord. And among them, even living at the time of Jesus' arrival, were Anna and Simeon and others. They were waiting, as it is stated in the case of Simeon, for, quote, the consolation of Israel. Mark that phrase, the consolation of Israel. We'll return to it later. What else were they waiting for? Or what's another way of stating this? They were waiting, as it is stated in the case 
of those who heard and believed the testimony of the prophetess Anna, in our same text, quote, for the redemption of Jerusalem. Mark that phrase, consolation of Israel, redemption of Jerusalem. Furthermore, they were waiting, as is stated in the case of Joseph of Arimathea, later on in Luke 23, for the kingdom of God. Note Luke 23, 50. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. Pause there, that would be the action and decision of the authorities to crucify the Christ Jesus. And he was looking, it says, verse 51, for the kingdom of God. Joseph of Arimathea, a good and righteous man, was waiting, you could say, or more particularly, looking for the kingdom of God. The consolation of Israel, (coughs) the redemption of Jerusalem, the kingdom of God, all ways of stating the hope of the faithful, the heart cry echoing through the centuries for God's purposes in history for the salvation of His own. Let me ask you something this morning. What are you waiting for? What does your heart beat for? What are your deepest longings? If we're real honest and assess ourselves, what are the things that we crave? that we desire more than anything else? It's a good question to ask, to do sort of a heart diagnostic. You could ask further or more particularly, what do we hold out hope for in this new year? It's customary in our culture to kind of set new uh, goals for ourselves at the turn of the calendar. And so sometimes that betrays or tells, you know, some of our deepest longings and desires. We put them into words or practical ways that we want to grow in a new year. Uh, Last week, Jason Moan was preaching for us, and he referenced 2 Timothy. And here we have a record of Paul's deepest longings, do we not? We could ask the question, did Paul hold himself accountable such that his deepest longings were commensurate with his greatest need? 2 Timothy 4, 6, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. He goes on to say in verse 8, There is laid up for him a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Listen to the final phrase. Not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So there we have four categories then, as we're keeping track. Consolation of Israel, redemption of Jerusalem, kingdom of God, and his appearing. These are things that represent true hope for the faithful. What do we hope for? The faithful saints in our study today, most particularly that we'll cover this morning, Anna and Simeon, remind us that our deepest longings ought to be conformed to our greatest needs. Anna and Simeon understood this. They joined the ranks of the barren, (coughs) oftentimes, as we've marked through this series, the outcast, the poor, the aged, yet not only those who stand kind of in this outcast category generally, but also even the wealthy and privileged, as we see in the case of Joseph of Arimathea. They join the ranks of these, welcoming the Messiah and His mission in the fullness of time. My prayer is that we would join them, or we would find ourselves cheering alongside them 
for God's purposes in history to be our greatest desire even now, in the words of Paul, that we would love above all other things His appearing. Amen? So a little background for this occasion, this meeting in the temple. Would you turn with me to Exodus 13? We'll cover real quickly by way of background info. Two references to the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law. First is in Exodus 13. The occasion for this meeting in the temple was two Old Testament ceremonial law practices. Listen, both of these involved substitutionary sacrifice. Two ceremonial liturgies, if you will, or practices, commands of the Mosaic law, both of them involving substitutionary sacrifice. We've referenced the first in recent sermons. It's the redemption sacrifice upon <coughs> the birth of the firstborn. Listen, Exodus 13, 12. You shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals and all males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be a mark on your uh, hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Now, in obedience to this command, thousands of years later, Mary and Joseph find their, themselves on the way to the temple. Luke 2.23, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Do you understand the picture? The Lord is the author of life. He demands perfect justice and so forth, and He can lay and He can exercise His claim to us any way He chooses. His justice visited the people of Egypt, <coughs> and the circumstance was as follows. If the blood of the substitute lamb was not on the doorpost, when the angel of God's reckoning came, the angel of death came, he would kill the firstborn son, and justly so. So therefore, those in this Exodus account who had substitutionary sacrificial blood applied to them and to their family in this instance would be saved. And the people of God were not to forget this principle. That is, salvation hinges upon us, hinges upon a substitute sacrifice. They were not to forget this eternal truth. And so it was instituted, this substitutionary sacrifice, that when the firstborn came into the family, was born and so forth, they would take the firstborn to the temple. They would not kill the son, but in his place, they would offer a substitute. Now, if you <coughs> were of poorer means and you couldn't afford to offer to the Lord your firstborn donkey, you could even provide a substitute sacrifice for your donkey. You could substitute a lamb in its place. So this is the basic idea of this first of this old covenant ceremonial law practices in view of the background and context. The second is in Leviticus chapter 12. And this is laws for purification that demanded an atoning sacrifice in this case. 
<coughs> so turn there with me if you would, Leviticus chapter 12. And the reason we're uh, spending just a little bit of time to get the background here is because this helps inform us as to the significance of what's going on here, including the, including the uh, testimony or the prophecy of Simeon and uh, the remarkable change of circumstances that is upon us with the arrival of the Messiah. So Leviticus chapter 12, 6 through 8. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. So you see again, substitution sacrifice, substitutional sacrifice, a burnt offering and a sin offering. And atonement is in view, the covering of sin, the making pure and clean what was uh, corrupted. That's the idea. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, this is interesting, note in the text 2, verse 8, if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. Back in our text today, Luke 2, 24. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So there we have a little background. This proves significant, this background, as events in the temple unfold. That brings us to the thrust of my message today under this heading, realities attending the incarnation from the very beginning. So that'll be a heading for three major points this morning. Realities are featured in our text today that attend, that go alongside the incarnation, God becoming flesh, taking on flesh in the form of Jesus Christ. Realities attending the incarnation from the beginning. Number one, illuminated condescension. So this is a sort of technical term, but it's a way of describing how Jesus Christ came into the world. He condescended, and this condescension was illuminated by the events that surrounded him. Secondly, miraculous recognition. Who noticed him? Who noticed that Jesus was the Messiah? Who noticed that Jesus was the one arrived now in fulfillment of the prophecies of old upon whom all of the salvation hopes of the covenant faithful people of God hinged. Who noticed him? It was a miraculous recognition indeed. And finally, messianic consolation. What did he accomplish? Indeed, the consolation of Israel, the redemption of Jerusalem, as we've stated, the inauguration of the kingdom of God, if you will, and his own appearing, even as he came in this instance, uh, his, the first of his appearings, if you will. So those are three realities, and let's look at these as they're illustrated in our text. Reality number one, attending the incarnation from the very beginning. How did Christ come? He came in a humble manner. He came uh, condescending to us, and this was illuminated by the circumstances around his birth. What does condescension mean? Well, today, condescension has negative overtones, the way we use it. If someone is condescending to us, they're sort of uh, proud and arrogant, and they want to make themselves look better than us by putting someone else down. 
That's not what condescension means in its original use and especially in its theological use. Condescension is instead the voluntary descent, the stooping low, the setting aside of prior prerogatives and dignity, the voluntary descent from one's position of rank or importance to engage, to commune with inferiors. So, parents of children in this room, I, I know I, I, you, this is a very familiar process for you if you have little ones in your home. If you're communicating with them, a lot of times it's customary for us moms and dads to get down on one knee, to look them in the eye, and to communicate a thought in very simple terms. When you do that, you're condescending in this sense. It's a picture of condescending to your child. You have this established rank, dignity, command of the English language, and certain cognitive abilities that far outmatch your two-year-old. But when you stoop low, when you set aside some of your uh, other prerogatives to give this little one your full attention in their best interest, this is condescension. How magnificent is the gospel and the events surrounding it of our Lord Jesus Christ in that He condescended to us. The analogy I just described could not even touch the surface of the magnitude of condescension, scratch the surface of the magnitude of condescension demonstrated in Christ coming to earth. Now, someone might hear you speak in a little baby talk type of cooing to relate to your little child just a few months old, and they might think, oh, that's not very dignified for someone who is an adult, and obviously uh, you sound a little strange if you didn't understand the context. How much more could you say that about the God, the creator of heaven and earth, being laid in a manger and wrapped by a poor mother in swaddling cloths? The creator of heaven and earth, the galaxies, the eternally pre-incarnate Christ existed as the Uh, as the second person of the Trinity forever and ever before even time began. He who by a word of his power spoke the entire known material world and cosmos into existence came as a baby. And more than this, he came to a poor family. More than this, he came to a place where there was no room for him in the inn. More than this, he was laid in a trough to feed animals and so on and so forth. This is illuminated condescension. The voluntary descent from one's position of rank or dignity to commune, to engage with inferiors. Philippians 2, 6-8, through 8, Christ, who was in the form of God, did not consider it... Uh, well, I should probably turn there because I'll, I'm not going to be able to quote it word for word. And this is a uh, primary text illustrating the principle of condescension. So Christ, as Paul explains who was in the form of God, Philippians 2, 6, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the, the most incredible point of condescension, the, humili- the self-humiliation of Christ in the interest of God's purpose to save mankind, is illustrated on the cross. 
that cruel implement of physical torture and excommunication by a wicked government inflicted upon Christ our Lord, the perfect and holy God-man. At this moment, the condescension uh, was illuminated to the nth degree, never to be exceeded by, may I suggest, by anything else in the story. Nevertheless, from the very beginning, this idea of Christ coming and taking on the form of a servant is illustrated. Think of it in his infancy, 228, as <coughs> Simeon interacts with Christ in this scenario. Isn't it interesting? He uses such lofty language all the while holding a little baby. He took him up in his arms. So he has this tiny baby. Normally we would coo, we would smile, we would look at this baby maybe singing a lullaby. Instead, Simeon says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Seen your salvation? How did he see salvation? I would have seen just a baby, you might think. He goes on, behold this child. Think of it. He's holding this little infant who cannot talk in his arms, presumably, is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel as if he could swing a sword to choose by his own command and will and power who will live and who will die at a sign that is opposed. A sword will pierce through your own soul also. And all of this incredible language attached to this little one. The infancy of Jesus Christ illustrates his condescension. There was a manger bed that Jesus was born in. There was a natural birth that he submitted himself to. The creator of the universe is wrapped in swaddling cloths earlier in the chapter. Simeon confesses, nevertheless, he is utterly dependent on this baby in his arms for his own salvation. There's poverty in view here as well. You might have noticed in Leviticus 12.8, there's provision for those who can't afford a lamb as a, price of purific- as a sacrifice for purification. For those who can't afford a lamb, provision is made in the law, and a bird like a turtle dove or pigeon and so forth will do just fine. And we see in verse 24 of our own text that that indeed is the sacrifice that Mary herself brought, accompanied by Joseph, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. That's the option they chose. Why? Presumably because they couldn't afford anything better than this. Thus, we, we can conclude that Christ not only stooped so low in, his birth, in the birth narrative, but he also stooped low to be born to a family of lowly means. In spite of what the prosperity gospel charlatans would have you believe, the context of Levitical law in this record testify to the lowly means of Jesus' upbringing. This was a provisional sacrifice in the case of those who couldn't afford a lamb. Jesus goes on to say, I mean, this idea of lowliness of estate attended him all through his ministry. Luke 9, 58, foxes have holes, birds have nests. Have nests, he says, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. These conditions persisted throughout his earthly ministry. Why? Because it illuminated his condescension. It showed us the incredible aspects of the incarnation that the creator of the universe would become a man and subject himself to such lowly means. And then finally, social status, infancy, poverty, social status. We see this illustrated, illuminated in the birth narrative. How did he come? He came in such a way as to be turned away at the end, to be born in a manger, as we've mentioned, to be subject to earthly rulers, even displaced at the time of his mother's greatest need by a stupid census, where they had to travel to register at the place of their home birth. Thus, 
not having the comfortable accommodations of the familiar at the time when he was born. He was visited first by shepherds, chapter 2, 8 through 20. This humble community, not the celebrated, not the uh, dignified uh, by any means in the culture there, but those of low estate were first to be granted audience before the king of kings at his birth. No privilege by, uh, of birth by worldly standards, and no doubt the circumstances of his conceptions um, of his conception made his parents, Mary and Joseph, the object of scorn in their community. How do you convince your neighbors that this is a virgin birth and that you had not been unfaithful in your marriage vows and so forth, and uh, committed fornication prior to your marriage vows? All this to say that the realities attending the incarnation from the very beginning illuminate how low our God has stooped in order to fulfill and to satisfy the terms and conditions of our salvation. This is how he came. And it is evidence, evident in our text. And this is reason for amazement, for awe-filled worship. And this was the response, was it not, of Anna and Simeon. They did not see the lowly status of Christ as a reason to disregard him like most did. But instead, the lowly status of Christ only increased their amazement at the great inscrutable wisdom of our God to do such a thing, to stoop so low, to glorify himself through this means of making himself low before he returns to his glory in his ascension. Incredible indeed. Now, our second point is easier to understand in light of the first. Because these circumstances are so counterintuitive, if God was to introduce himself into history... Would it stand to our reasoning that he would do it in such a way? The answer must be a unified no. Therefore, recognizing Jesus Christ requires miraculous, uh, a miraculous move of God. Miraculous recognition. This reality of the incarnation is also featured in our text. Given the circumstances of Christ's arrival, his introduction to humanity... They're so incredibly counterintuitive to the natural mind. Uh, raises this question, who would be predisposed to recognize him? That question is answered by a couple examples in our text today. Notice Simeon's predisposition. Who is Simeon? We learn something about him in our text today, verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So who is predisposed to recognize the Messiah? Well, in the case of Simeon, we see a list here, do we not? This is a man who was righteous and devout, and he was waiting for something. His deepest longings conformed to his greatest need. He knew that Israel needed reconciliation, hope, and peace, and he was waiting for it. He desired to see God's Christ, the Lord's Christ, when he came. And most substantially in this list, the Holy Spirit was upon him. Miraculous recognition of the Messiah is a part and parcel. It is a work of the Holy Spirit. In verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. 
So we see in this list that Simeon's disposition was marked by righteousness, a devotion, a waiting, an expectation, a faith in the future that God had prophesied, salvation of Israel, for covenant promises to materialize, and above all, the Holy Spirit was upon him. He had received revelation from the Holy Spirit. And notice this as well. He was abiding in the place of God's particular habitation, the temple. All of this helps us understand the context of why Simeon recognized who the Messiah was. The Holy Spirit and these means the Holy Spirit used opened his spiritual eyes to recognize, to appreciate, to prophesy, to love, all centered around the Messiah. Is miraculous recognition required today? Does it take a sovereign move of the Holy Spirit to open up spiritual eyes yet today to recognize Jesus Christ for who He truly is? Yes, absolutely. Compare yourself to Simeon. Ask yourself, do I love righteousness? Do I hate wickedness? What about my devotional life? Have I been faithful? Have I been conforming my affections to that which is Uh, Most important, what about my priorities? Do they measure up to that which Scripture would say should be at the top of the list? If you find yourself falling short in any of these measures, repent. Repentance is a means the Holy Spirit uses to change our hearts. Focus your attention. Look to Christ. Look upon Him. Learn to love His appearing. This is not something that you can conjure up in and of yourself. But as the Spirit works within you, you'll find yourself availing yourself of the means, namely and especially the Word of God. And then you will receive revelation by the power of the Holy Spirit through His Word, just as the Holy Spirit revealed Himself to Simeon, so that you can have the recognition and appreciation of the Messiah even today. Second, let's look at Anna's disposition. She miraculously recognized the Messiah too. Now remember, this is an infant. This is a little baby here. This isn't someone riding in on a glorious white war horse with the victory parade behind him as Jesus Christ will one day, and we see him pictured as such in Revelation. This is a little child, yet Anna recognizes him as well, verse 36. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, (coughs) of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And notice verse 38, and coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now here we have the example of a woman similar in her disposition to Simeon. She was a widow hoping in the Lord. Life had dealt her a blow, no doubt, in the loss of her husband. Just seven years, we see in the text, from when they were married. Did she turn to despair after these circumstances fell upon her? No, her (coughs) trial drove her to strengthen her faith. She found hope in the Lord. She focused her attention and her affections on the worship of the one true God. And she did so not only despite being a widow, but despite her, uh, age, d- despite her age. After all, she was 84. 
She did not depart, nevertheless, worshiping and fasting and prayer night and day. And where was she? She was also in the place of God's particular habitation, the temple. She was availing herself of the means that God had provided for man to be in connection, communion with the the Lord. And so it was under these conditions that she miraculously recognized the Messiah. A miracle of spiritual sight took place in Hannah and in Simeon. And they both testified that this was the one who was prophesied of old, had come and even now, though in child form, nevertheless represented the hopes of all Israel, all Jerusalem, the consolation and the redemption of the same. Where do you find yourself? Do you find yourself congregating regularly in the assembly of the beloved? Now, church for us today is not quite the same as the temple of old, but there certainly are plenty of overlapping principles, are are there not? Do we love and look forward to worshiping together with God's people such that they are likely more predisposed to recognize Christ, His importance, and to worship Him, to live in light of Him? There is principled application that we can draw from these examples. Uh, Likewise, the Word of God. Is the Word of God treasured as much in our hearts as the Holy Spirit speaking to Simeon saying, listen, you will not die before you see the Lord's Christ. If God had directly revealed that to your heart, you think you would ever forget No, if you were a believer, you would not. You would treasure that. You would write it down on stone if you could. And so Simeon kept on the table of his heart, as though written on stone, this promise revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he saw the Messiah. And we have the Word of God here. We have this whole corpus of God's promises and God's revelation to us. And we can learn from Simeon how we ought to treasure that revelation by the power of God of the Holy Spirit, such that the miraculous recognition of the Messiah, His importance, and who He is can be our experience as well. Now, (coughs) it is even clearer that recognizing Jesus Christ for who He is is a miracle as we read Simeon's prophecy, how most will take Him. This is the opposition reaction. Simeon goes on to prophesy... To inform the parents of the following, verse 34, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, listen, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. In other words, the default position of the reaction to the Messiah is going to be offense, opposition, rebellion, rejection. That is a default position. If you have welcomed the Messiah... It is because your eyes have been miraculously opened by the power of the Holy Spirit. Make no mistake. And he goes on, verse 35, A sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. No doubt speaking of Christ's death. Mary, the mother of Jesus, will see and suffer the suffering of her son. And the expectations for who the Messiah was to be that would just be natural and would make sense to us, are are going to be challenged to such a great degree that this prophecy of Simeon prepares even the parents of Jesus 
to recognize what they are up against, what they will experience in the life course of Jesus Christ. And so we see through this help of God's Word prophesied through Simeon, miraculous recognition is being granted even to Mary, who will no doubt remember these words when her son, some decades later, is broken, bruised, falsely condemned, hanging helplessly as a curse upon a tree there in front of the mocking Roman centurions and the virulent and uh, rebellious and wicked religious elite and, and everybody else who despised him on that day. This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. Now, this truth flies in the face of false teachers even in our day. I, I don't say this lightly. Even false teachers like Andy Stanley. Why do I bring his name up? He's very influential. I just happened to listen to him over the course of the last two weeks in an interview. And he was saying something like this. Being a Christian is so awesome and amazing that it strikes me as logical that everyone would want to be one if they knew how good it is. So he has this little quip, and I checked his Twitter, and sure enough, this quote from Andy Stanley, following Jesus will make your life better and will make you better at life. And then, thankfully, underneath that, there's a lot of responses. One was simply, is it a gif or a jif of a guy just with a stern look shaking his head? <laughs> that was my favorite one. That is a bunch of baloney. Following Jesus will make your life better and will make you better at life? No way. You see, when Andy Stanley wants to introduce someone to Jesus, he changes the Jesus concept to make it attractive to the modern man. Well, after you've introduced somebody to this concept of Jesus that sounds so great and awesome without their heart being changed, you don't have any Jesus at all. You have a false teacher holding forth a promises that are of his own design and not of the Word of God. The true biblical Jesus stands as a sign of opposition to all who are yet dead in their sins. And when you come before him, the command is to repent and to believe. Not to try Jesus and see if it makes you better at life. That is foolishness. That is false teaching. When you come to the cross, you come as a broken, decrepit, dead, and judgment-deserving sinner. And when Jesus Christ is presented in all his holiness to the sinner, it ought to bring a sense of fear and dread and concern and weeping and wailing and throwing yourself upon his mercy, not trying him on for size, but repenting for your sin against His majesty. This is the true Jesus. This is the Jesus that was prophesied and introduced to us through the pages of Scripture and by the Holy Spirit's influence was proclaimed through the mouth of Simeon. Don't be mistaken. It takes miraculous recognition, a miracle of spiritual sight to see and to behold Jesus to submit and to surrender to Him for who He truly is, as true today as it was then. Final point this morning, realities attending the incarnation from the beginning. How He came, illuminated condescension, who noticed Him, miraculous recognition. And finally, whatever does it mean, consolation of Israel, messianic consolation. 
what he accomplished in his incarnation. The term consolation is a cognate. That means it's a, a variation or very similar to another Greek word. The one is paraklesis, consolation. The other is paraclete, comforter. Have you heard the term comforter? Sometimes in its Greek form, uh, paraclete, it's an advocate, one who stands in between, one who inter- intercedes on their behalf, Holy Spirit, and sometimes Christ, as I recall, uh, both are referred to by this term. Well, if paraclete is comforter, then what the paraclete does is paraclesis. It is consolation. What is the consolation of Israel? Let me submit, it is the resulting relief, freedom, joy, peace, protection, deliverance, and dignity as a consequence of the advocate's intercession on our behalf. Imagine you stand before a judge and you are condemned in your sin until an advocate stands next to you, takes your sin upon himself, and now the judge looks upon the advocate and says, I see that the satisfaction, the judgment, and the punishment that this individual, the accused, is deserving of has been satisfied by you. I therefore declare this man justified. I declare the sinner justified. This is the, con- this is the idea of consolation. The pronouncement of not guilty, the pronouncement of peace, joy, freedom, deliverance, dignity, relief resulting from the work of the advocate on our behalf. Simeon was waiting for this. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Notice his words, verse 28, Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. And there's a connecting word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. In other words, Simeon knows there is no peace without salvation. There is no consolation without a deliverer, without his plan being fulfilled to deliver, to satisfy the terms of the peace agreement or the covenant that the greater party holds out. This is echoed earlier in the passage. In the message, the angelic message to the shepherds in the field. Remember what they sang? This worship song to the Lord, verse 14. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. This idea of peace uh, coincides with the consolation of Israel. It's proclaimed by the angels, it's proclaimed by Simeon. In other words, in order for there to be peace with God, there must be a Savior. There must be a paraclete, a comforter, an advocate, an agent who will secure salvation. And as Simeon holds his child in his arms, he proclaims, I can now die in peace because my eyes have seen your salvation. I am looking upon the paraclete, as it were. I am looking upon the one who will satisfy, who will, has the power and will accomplish the consolation of Israel. Hannah uses, or uh, related to Hannah's experience is a similar term. Verse 38, and coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Same idea. In other words, if you pair these two together, the, <coughs> the salvation provided for in this child 
will be a redemption price. Yes, a substitutionary sacrifice along the lines of the fulfillment which was prefigured even in the ceremonies that led Joseph and Mary to the temple in the first place. This would be satisfied in this little child. This is messianic consolation. Simeon goes on, verse 32. Speaking of this, or 31, that you have prepared, so my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, and he uses two terms, light and glory, verse 32, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Light, speaking of revelation or illumination in the first place. Zechariah prophesied similarly, Luke 1, 78, he has, his tongue has been loose upon the birth of his son, John. We call John the Baptist. And he says, Because the te- of the tender mercies of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Simeon echoes and expands this proclamation, this poetic picture of the Messiah's influence, even more directly be the case even for the Gentiles. A light of revelation to the Gentiles. The word of God will be proclaimed, understood among the distant peoples. And this will be for the glory of your people, Israel. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. The original covenant, the original Abrahamic covenant said, as God calls Abraham and appoints him with particular, as a particular milestone in his lineage and covenant history, he says, I will prepare, I will make from you a great nation, and you shall be a light to all peoples. And this, uh, this promise, this hope through future sons of Abraham, being a light to all nations, was coming to pass. And this was the moment when the borders of Israel will be broken like no other time in history. And the influence of the Word of God, the message of the gospel, is about to go forth through servants like Paul to shed light into the dark, pagan, as yet unreached uh, reaches of the known world, and this revelation will go to the Gentiles. And how will this glorify Israel? How will this be glory to Israel as a people? Well, think of it this way. This moment in redemptive history, if you will, is the vindication of the covenant hope of Abraham and his descendants. Henceforth, all grafted-in believers will claim the history of Israel as their own spiritual lineage. We, according to Hebrews, According to passages in Paul, our spiritual descendants of Abraham. We share a common spiritual lineage with the people of God. And thus, it's great vindication of the promises, and, and, and thereby, it is glory for the people, for his people, Israel. Now, as we close this message and, trans, and uh, transition to communion, I'd like you to keep something in mind. And that is this, recall again the context that brought Mary and Joseph to the temple in the first place. What was the occasion? Substitutionary sacrifice, which was needed for atonement, for redemption. As Simeon looks upon this little child, he sees in this Messiah a future sacrifice, which will provide atonement and redemption. This child would go forth according to his own prophecy to experience circumstances that will cause a sword to pierce through even his own mother's soul. Why? 
because he would be the purchase price for the redemption and atonement of all true believers. This baby was born to go to Calvary and accomplish this very thing. We cannot forget this. We de-emphasize this at our own peril and the loss of the true gospel. We cannot ever grow lackadaisical in our appreciation of these things. And so this morning, even in this meal before us, we have a sign, we have a symbol, we have a picture, we have a memorial and more of what is represented in the work of Jesus Christ. Children, let me ask you in this room, uh, what does the juice represent? What does the cup represent? What does it remind us of? Does anyone know? Jesus' blood. That's exactly right. And the bread. What does the bread remind us of? His body. So here we have pictured before us the redemption and atoning price for our sins. The shed blood and the broken body of Jesus Christ. This is the prophecy of Simeon came to pass in the course of of the New Testament, and as we later read in the Gospels. And the prophecy of Simeon is pictured even here, the Gospel at the Lord's table today. If you are a believer in this room, as you approach the Lord's table, remember these things, would you? Remember how the condescension of Christ is illuminated in His humiliating death on Calvary. This, the Creator of the universe, the Lord of glory, stooping so low to be made a curse for us. Remember that if you understand what these elements truly mean at a heart level, at a faith level, then that is miraculous recognition. And it is the Holy Spirit that has opened your eyes to see such a thing. It is not a given. And finally, thank the Lord that you have consolation, that you have peace, that you can now revel and the resulting relief, freedom, joy, peace, protection, deliverance, and dignity as a consequence of Jesus Christ, your advocate, and His intercession on your behalf. Let us transition in prayer. Lord, we thank You for these moments that we share together. We thank You for the means that You provide. We pray that You would maximize their use for Your glory and our benefit as we approach Your table today. We pray that You would write upon our hearts the seriousness, the significance, and the joy of Your gospel revealed. We pray that it would strengthen and equip us for whatever tests and trials you have ordained for us to walk through in your providence. We pray that you would equip us and strengthen our ability to proclaim the gospel to a world yet lost in their sins. Help us to do so without compromise, proclaiming the true gospel so that many might come to the knowledge of the truth as you miraculously open their eyes. In all of this, we give you the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.